Making sense of education by holistic think tank. Holistic Think Tank recently awarded a research grant to Fab Lab Foundation for creating a new interdisciplinary subject. Today we are joined by Monica Aring and Larry Halbert from Fab Lab Foundation. The topic of our conversation will be the interdisciplinary subject, the abbreviation IDS. And at the beginning, I would like to ask you, Monica and Larry, how are you involved in education? Monica, probably we will start from you first. Well. Um, I've been involved in education all my life, all my professional life, because my professional field has been um, how to employ youth, youth employment around the world, and also how do you develop a workforce, how, what policies and what practices are needed for having a workforce that can get jobs and succeed. Um, so a part of that is education. One part of that is business, another part is government, and another part is education. Because without education, you don't have a workforce, and without business, you don't have work. And without government, you don't have financing and rules and policies. So they all go together. So education has been a part of my work, my entire professional life. And I've looked at education systems in in over 50 countries and worked with educators in over 50 countries around the world, in pretty much all parts of the world, except inside Russia. Larry, what about you? Well, originally, um, a long time ago, I was went through training to become a high school history teacher. I actually went through my student teaching. And uh, instead of going into directly into the teaching profession, when I graduated as an undergraduate, I went on to graduate school uh, to a master's and PhD program. And in that program, I was asked to teach students as well in the field of counseling and counseling education. And then from there, professionally, I went into higher education where I began initially in a think tank, somewhat like HTT, uh, now teaching medical students and actually doing teacher training for faculty of medical schools all over the world. So education has been a thread for more than 50 years in my life. Um, my father, in, in terms of this project. My father was an elementary education principal. So this particular... You're familiar. You're familiar with... This project, yes, uh, gives me much satisfaction because it takes me back to many stories about his work as a primary school principal with, with young younger children. So it's something I've been excited about being involved in because because of that reason. I would like to ask you, what does uh, interdisciplinary subjects mean for you? How do you understand it? Well, how I understand it is, in fact, it, it again, it relates to my own education, Sandra. Nearly all of my courses, both in high school, in as an undergraduate university student, as a postgraduate student, all of my courses were taught as single subjects. So even in the social sciences, I found it frustrating because if I wanted to understand sociology and how it affected what I was learning in psychology or anthropology, I had to go to separate professors and separate courses. And I, I kept wondering as a younger student, why don't the social scientists talk to each other? Why don't they develop courses? Because there's so much overlap when we're talking about whether it's the psychology of individuals, but individuals relate in groups. And then as soon as it becomes a group, now we're talking about sociology. And then if we're looking at patterns over time, then we're talking about anthropology. So for me, it's 
very, very satisfying to be working on a project that takes interdisciplinarity as a fundamental way to both organize and teach uh, very important um, subjects, but teaching them as one subject so that it helps students learn and discover the connections rather than treating subjects independently in little silos. Monica, what about you? What uh, does it mean for you, interdisciplinary subject? I think it's that's what got me excited about this project, the interdisciplinary subject. And the reason I'm interested in it is work. So remember, I, my field has been employing young people and and work for how to do how a country develops a workforce. Um, work doesn't show up as little as in the in the form of oh this is a math problem or this is a science problem or this is a reading problem or this is a history. Work shows up as a challenge, a task that you have to do. And in order to be able to do it, you have to be able to you ha- you're forced to integrate all those different things. So, so if you have a, a a project at work, let's say you have to do a report, right? Um, you have to write a report. Oh, you need some math some math in order to show statistical correlations, and you need a little bit of of writing ability, and you need to have analytical skills, and you need to have curiosity to make sure that you have looked at all the different parts and life is interdisciplinary mm. <laughs> you know school schools since the 1300s and the dark ages thank god that that you that the church has preserved knowledge that was the job of the church um and though so they created these separate kind of silos but that became the tradition for universities but it has so divorced from real life it's it's use it's you know so i think interdisciplinary is essential and i had the fortune of having um a year and a half in a waldorf school where the education was inter- interdisciplinary and so i got a i got the experience i got a taste of it what kind of methodology can we use in the context of ideas uh, from your point of view well I think the methodology that we're using is, based on my experience, makes the most sense. And that is, um, the methodology is project-based learning, inquiry-based learning. Um, Not forcing a subject down somebody's throat, but to have it come out of an inquiry. So so, um, I'm thinking about, you know, in Sweden, I saw a high school that was inside the technology, the science and technology um, incubator in a city outside of Stockholm. And this, there was the university was in the incubator, the little, the little businesses in science and technology and innovation were in the incubator. And in the back corner was the gymnasium, the high school. And the high school was teaching I said, but I don't see any desks. He said, we don't need desks. We have tables where students work together. And I said, well, what do they work on? Well, they get projects from the companies. They Companies give us problems to solve and the students solve them. And in the process, they learn all the IT skills that they need. So I think that's the way to go about it, um, this project-based learning. Absolutely. You know, it, so much of traditional education involves memorizing information, factual information, and getting the right answer on some test. But what Monica is saying is that life doesn't appear that way. Life appears as problems, as tasks, as jobs to do. And to be successful in completing those tasks or doing those jobs, we have to draw upon various if you will, subjects, courses, and apply that learning. So for us, project, taking a project-based approach for this IDS course is the only thing that would make sense because it is about application, applying skills, competencies, 
knowledge in solving problems. And sometimes the getting the right answer becomes less important than the inquiry process and what you learn. Or in fact, sometimes failing and seeing uh, what it was that that got in the way or you being successful in solving a problem becomes far more valuable. And students remember that experience more than memorizing separate bits of factual information for a test. Soon after the test, they forget. I saw this so often teaching, even in medical students, they'd study for the exam, and one month later, if you ask them a question, walking around the hospitals, they wouldn't have the answer because they had studied for the exam rather than studied for life. Let's talk about implementation. Uh, what would we like to achieve by implementing uh, international uh, interdisciplinary subject uh, in schools? What do you like? Uh, what do you would like to achieve? Uh, um, probably, Larry. Well, I think this is something that we've been, as a team, we've been asking ourselves, well, since very early in working on this project, because we we began thinking about when we have successfully completed this phase, you know, what will happen next? And we have some very um, strong, I think, opinions or recommendations about implementation because, and Monica and I have talked about this a lot, because we recognize that implementing a course like this, um, at least in the United States education systems in public schools, and that's a critical distinction. Monica made reference to Waldorf as, as one of the private schools that we have, and they're, and they're in Europe, of course, as well. But we've, we've focused on what our instructions, as we understood them, were looking at public education and implementing new courses in the public age education system in the US is really challenging. So we I think it's in all the world is challenging, yes. Well it can be it can be accomplished in, for example, both Monica and I have talked about working in uh, developing countries most of our career, where there is one central education ministry that establishes a curriculum for the entire country, for every school, elementary or secondary. We don't have that system in the US. We don't have a centralized Department of Education that establishes one curriculum. If that were the case, then we could be focusing on how can we get the attention of the Department of Education at the federal level and lobby for them to include a course like IDS. So we've been asking ourselves the question of, once we've completed our syllabus, how can we begin to get teachers interested in I would like also ask about it, teachers and directors of schools as well. Absolutely. So in fact, uh, a strategy that we uh, have undertaken, uh, Sandra, is we're developing the syllabus using what we call a design team of uh, elementary primary school teachers. And quite logically... And fab lab teachers. And, and fab lab teachers as well. But the reason that I focused on the elementary teachers is because they, um, by virtue of helping build and design this IDS course, we think will have a stake in wanting to see it tried out in their respective schools. And we think that the second phase of this project is a very, very critical phase. We've only talked briefly with Anna about it, but, but there really needs to be a pilot testing of the course, of the, of the courses that all the project teams develop. And during that pilot testing, that's when teachers would actually have experience delivering the IDS course to students. So we're trying to plan ahead and say, okay, if we select 
teachers to design it with us, they will be more inclined to say, it, it, in a sense, Sandra, they'll have something at stake, a piece, of, a piece of ownership, if you will, because that course will reflect their thinking in terms of based on the 10 competencies that HTT identified, based on the project-based approach that we've used as a foundation, and, and a much more, if you will, student-centered approach to the course as opposed to a teacher-centered approach. So that's, that's the strategy that we have in mind as we look ahead to implementation. I think we also think that organizing some teacher training workshops and sessions will be a critical strategy to both introduce it, the IDS course, and give teachers some on how they can um, themselves include this course as part of what of their teaching in the elementary school. It's very important to have this inclusive approach. Yes, you propose an inclusive approach. It's very important. Do you have Monica? Do you have any idea to join to to add for to it? Let's see. I think what Larry's. I totally agree with Larry. I think the one thing that I would add is that, um, in addition to, I'm going to now speak for the U.S. I, like I said, I could look at education as different in every country, slightly different. It's a different story. But if we look at it in the United States. We have the um, um, the public schools, we have private schools, and we have um, and in the public schools, which still the majority of students go to, um, all the innovation in education is happening outside of the schoolroom, after school programs. Um, so there's been a, a piece of research done looking at where's the innovation happening. It is not happening in schools. It is happening after school. That ought to worry us. That's a concern. So then you have, so, so some students may get that after school experience. So the innovations, whatever they are, and some will not. Then you have, um, I think now, I don't know how many in the U.S., maybe 600 fab labs. I'm not sure in the U.S., but you have 2,500 around the world. Fab labs are makerspaces that are that are linked to each other and to MIT. So they share knowledge, they share information, and they share resources and ideas. And, and um, so each fab lab is an opportunity for young people, children also to learn um, how to make stuff. And in when you're making stuff, you can do it alone or you can do it in a group. And so the, the opportunity to learn the competencies in the process of making something is really, I think it's really strong. That's a very, very strong opportunity because as you're making something, you have to, you, you, you have to learn many of the, um, the competencies that HTD has developed. So, um, because you have to you have to design together, you have to be curious, you have to solve problems, you have to um, learn how to appreciate differences. You and there's so many things you have to do when you're making something. So I think the fab labs are a fantastic opportunity to spread this innovative, this project-based learning notion outside of the classroom. Now, in those places where we can combine classroom learning, with learning in a fab lab, that's ideal because then young people are not only learning the competencies through the IDS, but they're also learning um, the technology that they need to be successful in the 21st century because it's a digital century. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's what so I would add. Whether we like it or not, right? <laughs> whether we like it or not, right. <laughs> Uh, how can you convince school directors, as I already mentioned, and parents to implement ideas in their schools? Oh, I want to jump in on that one because that one, um, again, because of my family background, that one interests me. I think one of the most powerful change strategies, if you were trying to design a, a change process, um, first of all, having this as a separate course whoever within the HTT team um, came up with that, 
I think that was a very smart um, piece of thinking uh, so that it's a course unto its own. It's taught separately. What I've seen happen um, many times is as students get excited about having, this is hands-on learning when it's project-based, you're not just listening to the teacher delivering information, giving short lectures. You're building something with your hands and your mind and as a team. Um, I think it's very, very likely that students will go home and always parents say, how was school today? Did you do anything interesting? I think that the students themselves and their excitement in being asked to actually um, build something, construct something, or, or even envision how they'd go about designing something um, will, will come across to their parents. And slowly but surely, parents will say, I, I want to talk to the principal. I want to talk to the teacher. You know, my child is coming home talking about this course, but I've never heard of, a, of an IDS or an interdisciplinary course. What is this? So it may be a slow process, but I think that actually the students and then teachers involved in this course will also show calls upon them to really be facilitators of learning rather than just delivering information. And that's an exciting prospect for teachers as well. Of course, but you already said that uh, we are talking when this subject is already implemented in school. But at the beginning, for example, then nobody knows what is it. What is it? How we can convince the parents? Uh, really, there is a new subject. Uh, let's uh, let's uh, uh, let's go ahead and try and uh, believe us that it's good for our children and so on. Do you have an idea about it? I, I think what, what you heard from Larry was uh, an entirely um, uh, community-led or from the ground up process. I also think that you have to look at the decision-making process for how education gets delivered. Who is making the decisions and what institutions are involved, okay? So if you look at in every country that I've looked at, Well, I don't know about the developing countries, but certainly in Europe and U.S., education is a problem for the state. The state makes the curriculum, the state makes the decisions, um, etc. You say it's a problem. It shouldn't be a problem. It should be a... Uh... Yeah, education is what the state is responsible for. Okay, so now the state makes the policy. Who, how does that policy get made? Well, well, there's the education commissioner and or whoever leads that. And there's a team of people that work for them and they make the decisions about the curriculum. In Germany, they do it together with business um, in many cases for the apprenticeship programs, right? Um, in other countries, they don't involve business. They have advisors. In Sweden, business sits on the advisory board in other countries. So it's all different. But basically, there is a state body So how do you deal with that state body? How do you get that state body to say that this should be part of every elementary education? That's, I think that's one question that needs to be looked into, you know, then, so, so one thought that, and then secondly, the state bodies in every country that I've looked at, They rely on think tanks. They rely on different group on, on special think tanks to help advise them. Okay. So I've worked for two of them in the US. These think tanks pioneer often develop new methodologies for teaching something, teaching, of course. So one of the things Larry and I thought about is if we were you, if we were you guys, if we, we were HTT, we might consider putting, creating 
you know, let's say in maybe three pilot countries um, or just creating a meeting of ministers of education or secretaries, whatever you call them, together with people in think tanks and having them and having them look at the HTT results that you've produced and saying, what would it take to put those into your country? Oh, it's a very good idea. It's thank you for this idea. It's a very good idea. Mm-hmm. We actually proposed it way back in November, I think it was, didn't we, Monica? In we our did. early uh, conversations, early on, uh, right? Yeah. yeah, but it, uh, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't received uh, at that time. But I think the focus back in November, October, November, anyway, was on these uh, funding these projects as initiatives um but i the reason that why that idea appealed to both monica and i and i have spent maybe a little more time than than she has in the developing world uh, for example when i was recruited to do a project in kenya it was to work with the if you call call it the ministry of education they had a curriculum development division within that ministry. And as Monica was describing, that division for curriculum development had the responsibility to develop the curriculum for the entire elementary education system in Kenya. A group of people, maybe 15 or 20, not a large group. I was assigned to work with them to help them develop a course in health because they wanted to begin to introduce health subjects in the elementary school curriculum throughout the country of Kenya. Um, and, And while the group I was working with wasn't particularly, it wasn't their idea to include health subjects, that was, that had determination had been made by the minister of health and the minister of education. So what Monica is saying is we thought if you brought ministers of education in this case together with with a number of think tanks, uh, educators, and the question was asked, you know, would your country be interested, see value in an interdisciplinary subject? and course like the IDS course. Um, and what benefits do you think that would offer you know, to your country, to your young people, to your students? Um, they're in a position where, in, it's, at least in the developing countries, they could make a decision to then say to the division of curriculum development, you know, we want to see you find a way to introduce this course throughout the country. We're talking about the example of Kenya. And, and the recommendation that, that we've been uh, introduced to is that we do some teacher training sessions so that we help teachers understand how to deliver this course most effectively. Because it's a different kind of course than the rest of the subject-based courses that they're used to teaching. So that's a very powerful audience of potential change makers, if you will, in the developing world. Here in the US, working through educational organizations, teachers, national organizations, um, lobby groups, it would require quite a different change strategy to promote, actually first to introduce the IDS course itself, and then promote it, create some interest among teachers, among administrators. Um, it's, It's a very different change process that would be required here in the US than, than certainly in the developing world. But we're talking about um, millions more students uh, in the elementary ages in those developing countries than we have even here in the U.S. So uh, we hope it's something that 
that HTT will consider in the future. Thank you. We will think about it. Uh, thank you for your idea. Um, IDS is already a reform, let's say. Yes, uh, we already make a reform in uh, in school. I would like to ask you, you talk about administration, about teachers, about institutional approach. Can the reform of the school be carried out from the bottom up, uh, outside these uh, institutions? What, what, what do you think? Is it possible or not? I don't think so. I don't think so. What I did was I made a little... I'm not sure this is... We can see it. We can see it, yes. Mm-hmm. Can you see it? I tried... So... I'm very interested in systems. Larry and I are both very interested in systems and how systems function. So you have different you have different actors in the system that is producing students that are educated. So one actor is the ministries of education. Okay, another actor is the uni the universities. Now the universities are important actors because they are training the teachers. Right? And they also get money from the ministry. So one of the things I, I think we need to look at is how does the money flow? Because what gets paid for gets done. So you've got ministries, you've got universities, and then you have teachers. Teachers come out of the universities and the teachers are using what they've learned. And then you have local administrators, local administrative bodies, um, In the U.S., it's individual school districts. In other countries, it's different. It's organized differently. But you have often a local intermediary. So, do you think there are other actors in the system, Larry? I would certainly say students are an actor in the system. Students are, and parents probably as well. Parents because they choose the school. And parents. Parents. But and parents. they don't. But parents and students are. They're not part of the money flow. So I would put parents. I would put parents off on the sides because they pay taxes and their taxes go to the ministry. And that's so they have they can decision, they can influence on decision as well. They can, but it's very um they have no choice. They should send their children to the school because they should they have no choice. <laughs> this is this is a radical strategy for parents to make to make that kind of, um, to force the ministry to change its financing. But the ministry lists, so the question is, the ministry listens to who? Who does the ministry listen to? Uh, it's a really interesting question. I mean, do they listen to parents? I'm not sure. Um, they do listen to business, maybe. I I'm not sure, but these are things to look at. The point is that this is a system of many, of several actors. And if you want to make change, you have to make change with all of these actors. You have to bring them together in order to have change become possible. Because if you change the ministry, but you don't change how teachers are being trained, nothing happens. If you don't change um, uh, over here, if you don't change the teachers and what the teachers, you know, it's, it's like it's, it's all connected and you have it's interdisciplinary. It's, You have to work with a system, not just one part of it. And student became as a subject. Students are a part of the learning system, but I'm looking at the finance, the the system of the delivery of education. Uh, where does the money come from, and how does it flow? Who does it go to? That's what you have to work on. So my, I, I have a policy degree in public policy, so that's what I, I, I look at. That it, where the money flows is what happens. In what direction should school and education reform go, in your opinion, in such situation? I think they should do what Finland did. Finland is, to my mind, has done the best job. So you can compare Finland and Singapore, both of them really. So the bigger context is innovation. The future economic development of countries, how they get income, how people get livelihoods, how you produce tax revenues, really is going to come from innovation, not traditional manufacturing. That's over. So how do you build an innovation-ready citizenry that can innovate? That's the question for many, many countries that they're asking themselves. And that's why they're so interested in fab labs, for example. So to get an inno innovation-ready population, you have to you have to really change education, which was designed for traditional manufacturing jobs or service jobs where every job was known and you just did it and you followed a blah, 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 like an assembly. So 
countries like Finland on one extreme and Singapore on the what Singapore is doing is very much well I can't I have not looked in the last two years so maybe things have changed but they're very much drilling you know every country wants to have math and science math and science math and science top results um with the PISA and the TIMS test and so on. So Singapore is taking the approach of drilling, 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 and there's a whole huge industry that's grown up of tutors just to prepare students to get top grades, okay? So they can get into the top universities and have a top life, et cetera. In Finland, um, it's it's quite different. They, um, I believe they don't really focus that much on testing. Um, in Finland, the... Now, I don't know about elementary school, but the high school teachers, um, the school happens in Finland for high school students in the afternoon. In the morning, they learn on their iPad. They get all the course, the subjects that they need, you know, where you have to drill and train. So that's delivered over, over the Internet. There's no reason to have one teacher to for for 20 students when the same thing could be lecturing when you could lecture a thousand students. So the morning is done with lectures on the internet and the afternoon students have to work on interdisciplinary projects in their area of interest. So they have arts and humanities, they have the health, they have science and technology, they have different interest areas. Um, and the projects are very carefully selected for the acquisition of competencies of the kind that you're talking about at HTT. Um, I think the Finland model is a, is a brilliant model, but it requires very different training for teachers than what teachers now have. And Larry is, can talk about that. I mean, that the teacher training is essential, isn't it, Larry? It really is. It's, it's, I think it's at the whole core of the idea because the course itself, unless you were going to deliver it 100% online, uh, the course is going to be dependent upon teachers with some different skills than they typically have been trained and, and uh, utilized as classroom teachers. The emphasis has been so heavily upon delivering information historically and and much of teacher training at least in this country and the countries that I've worked in also has so heavily emphasized teachers in that role of of delivering information to students and typically you know using what's called chalk and talk that's one way that's been referred to it I always liked that term but in the developing world it's quite literally the case I've, I've sat in on elementary classes in Uganda where there was a, a, a blackboard hung from a tree and students sat on the ground and the teacher began delivering the chalk and talk lesson of the day. So we're talking about something that is really quite, quite different. And that is teachers and in the Finnish system, the Finland's, um, what they've done in effect is they've flipped the, if you will, they've flipped the school day for students so that they're utilizing online learning to get the necessary information in a very efficient way that they then in the afternoon can draw upon that information and use it in the applied sense, applying it in solving these projects or problems that, that they've been uh, given. Now for teachers in the traditional classroom, um, they're so used to, if you will, emphasizing the delivering of the information phase and less comfortable, less experienced in the actual facilitating, asking questions, that promote uh, an inquiry, you know, the difference between, you know, tell me the history of Poland when Poland was um, established as a sovereign nation and students raise their hand and they give the year that Poland was, the difference between asking questions that are in search of a single right answer versus 
saying to students, okay, your project that you've selected, you want to build a birdhouse. That's what is that correct? And the students say yes. And the student, the teacher begins asking a series of questions. Well, will this birdhouse be for all birds or a particular species of bird? You know, have you thought about that? Mm, okay. Um, what do you think will be important for birds? It, it, you know, it, in this, so you you begin guiding an inquiry. Critical thinking, asking questions. Critical thinking, yes. And you're not interested in that single answer, the correct answer. You're interested in the thought process and shaping that thought process and digging down into students' thinkings and their reasoning. You know, why, why did you choose this particular kind of bird? We have very few of those here in, uh, let's say, in Seattle. Why did you choose this bird? So reasoning, critical thinking, creativity, these are the competencies that you're really trying to cultivate and nurture. And we know from research that that, that requires a different approach on the part of the teacher that is much, much more directed at inquiry, curiosity, problem solving, and sustaining that problem solving rather than going for the single correct answer and then being satisfied. So the teacher training implications for us are very, very significant and need to be, you know, I think um, incorporated into what happens after these three projects are um, completed. Yeah, it, it will be interesting. Make me understand, if it's, if it's possible to combine, uh, for example, physics and literature, or should we think about individual blocks of subjects like literature and letters, maths and the technology in terms of interdisciplinary approach? In, in terms of implementation, these ideas. Is it possible, for example, to have, uh, for example, physics with letters? Physics, I know, for example, you talk about medicine. It's very important philosophy for medicine. It's very important, yes, issue. And uh, how we can implement these ideas in, and make them one uh, one subject, make from one subject. Yes, it should be blocks or we can, can combine it or it should be individually go like interdisciplinary subject. Well, we answered that well, question. One of the ways you're thinking. Go ahead, Tony. We, we answered that question by, um, and that's what we will focus on in our work with the teachers is selecting projects that will draw on the, that we will select the projects based on the competencies, which, what projects will allow us, allow students to acquire those competencies? What kind of projects? So you would, if you want to combine physics and literature, you might ask what kind of project would require a student to combine both physics and literature? What kind of inquiry? What, what's a question that would engage them? Um, so you, yeah, you have, to, you have to move outside of the box of the subject and you have to go beyond it and say, where, how in the world might they be combined and what questions would combine them? And I can think of many, you know, many ways to combine them, but it's... Well, what about the example of the, um, uh, we're, we're proposing what we call a capstone project right. sample. And what Monica's describing is that that each year of the, let's say, K through six curriculum would have a capstone project for the IDS course. And uh, an example that we both are, are very um, interested in is asking students to design the community that they would like to live in someday. Now that that to answer that question, you you could inquire into what would it look like? What would the buildings look like? 
What would the governance of that community look like? Who would it be designed for? Would it be designed just for, you know, younger people or a diverse population? Um, what would sustain that community economically? How would people uh, support themselves? How would their health care? What would the education system look like? Do you see how you, you start with design the community that you would like to live in? All the above, all the above, Sandra, that's the point, is that, that in answering the questions that are quite diverse questions, um, you would have to learn about you'd have to learn a number of skills. You might even ask students to go and interview people in the community where they're living currently to learn from them and, and interview people from different age groups. So the inquiry process can draw upon different subjects and then they actually could be asked to construct a model of this community. Now, here is where the math and the science using computers, software, they, they come into play. And actually, building, I think that's you, Monica. It is, yeah. Building a model of this community, that a physical model of it. So you can begin to see that there are different subjects that could be incorporated in this project, depending upon what you want to emphasize. Okay. Plus, plus, Sandra, if you had a history teacher and a physics teacher, let's say, and they were collaborating and they said, oh, what kind of a project could we have that would reflect, that would force, have young people learn both physics and history in a new way? You, let's say you could then you could invent a project like design the community that you would want to live in. In the history course, you present the history part. In the physics course, you might present the physics part. You know, you could there's so the point is to do inquiry-based learning, and that's very different from what teachers are used to doing. And I think that is our number, your number one challenge is not to have the course delivered. Only your number one challenge is how to build the capacity of teachers to do this kind of thing. What should the ideal conditions be at school for implementing IDS? How many children should there be in each class? What kind of school is most suited, conventional or non-conventional? And what about the ages? Should the, the, the children will be in the same age or it could be mixed as well? What do you think? Hmm. Well, we designed the course to be freestanding. You required for the course to be freestanding. The course is entirely based on project-based learning. So the teachers are selecting projects. The projects will happen in groups of eight. They have to, or some kind of groups. Or smaller groups. Too. Or smaller groups, but they have to happen in groups. They don't happen individually. So the class size is not so important. You know, you could have five teams of you know, eight in a classroom of 40, or you could have, you know, 10 teams of three in a classroom of 30. It's this, the project-based learning happens in teams. It shouldn't happen individually. So you could, pl you could plunk it into any classroom, into any setting. The way you, the way you specified it is make it so that any school can use it. Yes, but I'm talking now in general, when we already implement these ideas, what do you think? Is it possible? Is it, uh, should we uh, implement it each class or it could be the group of different, uh, with children of, with different age, ages? What do you think? Is it possible or not possible? I'm not, I'm just talking now in general, yes, to when we already implement the ideas. Yeah, it's possible. It may or may not be ideal. That's the question. And that, and I think if you asked educators, I think you'd get different opinions about whether that's ideal. One of our design member teams, her, her uh, experience was teaching um, first, second, and third grade students together in a very, very small school in 
uh, a rural community. So, so she has that experience of combining different age group students. Um, I think at this point, we're, we're looking at the US system and seeing that typically um, the students are in, in age, uh, they're in grades that are age uh, determined. The first grader typically is six years old, second grader is seven. But we've asked the question, should we be designing the syllabus in such a way that it could be first and second graders together or second, uh, third and fourth graders together? And we're early enough in our in our design work, Sandra, where we haven't we haven't settled on what is ideal. Uh, it may be that what we in fact end up with offers that option that this IDS course can be taught as a as a as a separate course for first graders. And here's what it would look like. Here are the learning objectives. Here are the projects. Or it could be taught together with first and second grade students. And again, here are the, here's the syllabus for the first and second grade together. Um, we haven't made a determination of what we think is ideal. We'd rather have it flexible in hopes of getting more acceptance and more, because again, we're asking what can we do that will increase the likelihood of implementation or adaptation. Um, we don't want to develop this course and put a lot of energy into it and then have it sit on a shelf somewhere in Krakow, Poland or anywhere else in the world. We would like to see it utilized, adapted and have teachers be, be excited about it in some way but see how they can make it work in their context, where they're, where they're teaching. That's our aspiration anyway. Okay, thank you very much indeed for being with us. Today we are, we are joined by Monica Arink and Larry Halbert from FabLab Foundations. Thank you very much for sharing with us your ideas about interdisciplinary projects. Thank you very much indeed. You're welcome. Thank you, thank you.